Okay. <coughs> Welcome everyone to the BMJ breakfast session at the Nuffield Summit at Wooden House in Surrey. We've had a, a fascinating day yesterday and this morning grouped around the table eating eggs and bacon and coffee are a, a pretty, I would say, high-powered group of people who are going to help us think about what next after Robert Francis's reporting to mid-staffs. And let me tell you who's around the room. We've got Robert Francis himself, QC. We've got Nigel Edwards, Director of Global Healthcare at KPMG. We've got Neil Dixon, Chief Executive of the General Medical Council. We've got Jan Filikowski, Chief Executive of Great Ormond Street Hospital. Stephen Dorrell, MP, Chair of the Health Select Committee and former Secretary of State for Health. Jeremy Taylor, Chief Executive of National Voices, which is a national alliance of health and care charities in England. We've got Sam Burrell, who's a Chief Executive Officer of CCG, the CCG in Torbay, who's a GP. Uh, Julie Moore, Chief Executive of University Hospital Birmingham, and also Chair of the Shelford Group, which is a group of the leading academic teaching hospitals. Uh, Simon Stevens, President of Global Health at United Health, the uh, United States Insurer. Bruce Keogh, Medical Director of the NHS Commissioning Board. Uh, Ruth Thalby, who is the Senior Fellow in Health Policy at the Nuffield Trust, and Alistair McClellan, Editor of the Health Service Journal. And I'll be chairing the session, and I'm Fiona Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ. So if I could just begin by asking, um, and I will expect, um, just do jump in when you have something you'd like to say, what do you think are the main one or two things that people should take away from the Francis report? Julie, I see you leaning forward. <laughs> Just getting comfy. Um, I think one of the things that the Francis report pointed to is how many people are currently involved in monitoring, overseeing and regulating quality. And I think one of the key points was to simplify that. Um, I'm not sure that's happened yet with the announcement about the Chief Inspector of Hospitals. Um, but I think that where you have, very interestingly, some years ago, and there is a point to this anecdote, when, a pay, when somebody was mugged on the New York subway, some psychologists looked into why so many bystanders stood by and watched and didn't intervene. And they came up with the theory that the more people there are who are responsible, potentially responsible, the less people feeling that, that they have some accountability to act. And I think the more people we have involved in this, the more people are likely to think it's someone else's problem and not mine. And I think we need to clarify and simplify that. Bruce, your thoughts on that? Well, I, I agree with Julie, and um, quality, in a sense, starts at home. So I'm of the view that we've got an NHS that employs well, 1.4 million people, and that each and every one of those people has a contribution to make. And the issue, for me, is what our lines of defence are in ensuring that that happens. So the first line of defence, or the first place that quality of care is exhibited is when two people get together and someone seeking help and someone offering it at the uh, often in a closed private and privileged encounter and how how the the frightened scared patient who's not feeling well experiences that determines what they think quality is about so each and every professional, I think, that has to deal with patients sets the tone for quality of that organisation. And the, <coughs> the role, I think, of the organisation is to simply set an environment which encourages appropriate behaviour in that encounter. 
and supports it. Um, and frankly, if that worked, you wouldn't need a regulator for quality. Um, it would be ingrained in the system. And I get worried, um, I, I suspect, from a slightly different perspective to, to, to Julie, but it comes to the same place, that whenever something goes wrong, we blame the regulator. We, we, the blame is placed very high up in the system when actually the problems are deep in, um, in an organization if there are issues with quality. And they're often simply down to a tiny handful of individuals who cast a long shadow over that organization. Sam, you were going to... The key point I got from the Francis report, um, which is a simple point but a very important one, is that listening to patients really does matter. And actually, um, I think there's been a danger in the past where patients have said things and people have been complacent and said, well, that's normal for the NHS, that's how, how the NHS is. You can't expect more than that from the NHS. It's, it's a, um, a, a sort of busy, overworked organisation that can't... Um, deliver more than it does and I think there's it's almost normalized um, patient complaints to, to, to saying they, they, they don't count as much as they should and I think there's also been a problem and certainly we've had it locally where our GPs have stopped putting in um, alerts and concerns about services over a period of years um, when they've seen things happen um, that aren't right for patients because they've felt a frustration about um, nothing changing and nothing being improved and um, they haven't had a, a way of being fed back to with their concerns so I think what's really important moving forward is that we create systems where we can collect trends and complaints we can listen to the patient engage them throughout the commissioning cycle properly and make sure that people when they raise concerns do get proper have a systematic system so that they get proper feedback so that they can feel um, empowered to actually raise concerns and feel it will make a difference and will change things for them with their services. Thank you. Jeremy Taylor, how do you feel we could achieve that? Well, I think, the, I think that point is absolutely right. That I think one of the, one of the key lessons from the, the Stafford disaster was a, a failure to listen. So I think we do need, uh, for me, the, the takeaway message, if you like, is we need to do something to strengthen the patient voice in all its guises. Uh, each individual patient feeling that they can speak up and raise concerns, which we know often doesn't happen either because of low expectations or low expectations that anything will happen as a consequence of, of raising concerns or fear of what might happen uh, if, uh, if they raise a concern. In the NHS Constitution, you have a legal right, or it states your legal right, to make a complaint uh, at various levels, including uh, you know, calling for a judicial review, which is fantastic, although unlikely to happen in many cases. Um, but um, you don't have a legal right to be protected against adverse consequences of raising a concern. The Constitution provides that as a pledge, uh, which is a policy commitment. And I, I think there is a, a case for saying, why shouldn't that be a legal right? Robert, do you want to respond to that? Well, yes. As I was listening to what people have been saying, I, I'm reminded of my somewhat long career of actually appearing in medical cases one-to-one. -one. And some of the things I've learned in that I think could be applied throughout the system. And the first is the doctor-patient relationship is about, first and foremost, about asking the patient what's wrong, what's, what they want, and most importantly, listening. And cases that go wrong in medicine are often because the doctor hasn't listened. And in this case, I think this is, things have gone wrong because the system hasn't, hasn't listened. 
And, and the other thing about a doctor-patient relationship is that the doctor will always, as a good doctor, will always put the patient first. And that's, he won't go home, he, she won't go home until the patient has been properly looked after. The system doesn't do <coughs> to do that um, either. The other thing is that doctors personally own a their own responsibility towards their patients, and I think it's about time that everyone, as well as doctors, felt that about patients, both individually and collectively. And I think if the system thought of itself as, as a doc the good doctor should think, think of uh, him or herself, um, probably we wouldn't need any of my recommendations at all. Yeah, as a uh, chief exec of a, of a foundation trust, what have you taken from the Francis report? At the heart it's about is our culture and our behaviour and uh, I think for a manager I take away not so much a uh, duty of candour, which I do take, but it's a duty to uh, listen, uh, to ask, um, to evaluate and to do something that uh, an average general hospital will have probably <coughs> half a million patient episodes of one sort or another a year. So we can't, anecdote, we can't extract half a million stories and put them together. So I, I think it's how we manage to ensure we access and use the power of story, the power of narrative, with the duty to bring that together uh, as well. And I, I think it's, we have to have an alertness almost to the point of paranoia. It says, never assume we know. I, I was very struck by... Um, a uh, coroner commenting on an unwarranted death in a large teaching hospital a year or so ago. And actually, um, he uh, died of thirst because he needed to be given water and this was ignored. And the um, coroner described the culture that allowed that to happen as a culture of assumption. And that struck me, we must never assume we know. We must always check and find out. And if, if I might make one other entirely different comment at a general level like Julie. One of the things it has made me think, and I started to say yesterday, why do we distinguish between FTs and non-FTs? Our duty is the same. Shouldn't our regime for quality, for safety, for checking them be the same? Nigel, why do we bother with FTs and non-FTs? <laughs> I thought entirely sure. Uh, it's about absolutely honest. I, mean, I think I'm with Julie really here. I think the, the, the main responsibility for how organisations function and deliver quality needs to be vested with. The, I think one of the, the, the very strong lessons I, I take from the, the sort of the story of, of Midstaff, someone else is minding the shop. Um, uh, we're okay because we've been, we've had assurance of that from from someone else. That then raises a question about what are the competences and skills you need on on that board and whether we've got the right people. And well. Um, it's not just, I mean, the FT's got the added complication, which we might, we might come back to about um, their governors and, and how they fit in, into this story, whether they, can, they make things more confusing rather, than, uh, uh, rather than, than less. So it's not just the right people, it is, as, as Jan was saying, about an attitude of mind. Um, I'm very struck by something that uh, Julie's medical director uh, uh, said in a piece of work that we've been doing, which is, you know, the more he measures, the less he sleeps. Um, and it's about... What Jan was describing, moving towards this, what's often called in the literature, a high reliability organisation, which means a sort of preoccupation with think that things are going to fail. Stephen Dorrell. Uh, I think quite often in these discussions that follow uh, big reports, there are one or two sound bites that 
crystallize quite a lot of thinking. And the example I often quote from the Bristol report into a much smaller scale, but very similar sister examples of failure in Bristol over 20 years ago, is that the real scandal of Bristol was not that nobody knew, it was that everybody knew. Uh, and the takeaway from in the same zone out of Robert's report for me uh, was the phrase that people were doing the system's business. They weren't focusing on the patient in front of them, as Bruce was talking about. And it's that sense, what Jan described, I think, as paranoia about how things that can, can go wrong. Uh, understanding that it isn't somebody else's problem, it's your problem if you see something going as it shouldn't go on, if something going wrong around you. Neil Dixon. I'm first of all struck by the question of whether this is going to be a seminal moment. Are we going to look back in 10 years' time and say this thing has actually made a difference or not? And, I, and I'm still, it's still unclear about that. I absolutely agree that the focus on local leadership and local organisation is absolutely crucial. Though I also think there are responsibilities on either side of that local leadership and organisation. And there is a danger in all this that everybody contributes by saying, yes, I've identified who the key person to do this is and it's not, it's not, the finger's not pointing back at me. Um, so I think, first of all, on one side, there is an issue around the role of national regulation, both system and professional, and how that works, and not overestimating what it can do, um, but on the other hand, making sure that it is considerably better joined up than it currently, uh, currently has been working. On the other side, I think down at the level of the individual, patient and professional, and how those professionals feel about themselves when they go to work in the morning, and unless they feel good about going to work in the morning, we've got a real problem. That's partly, of course, that's about organisational leadership and good management and all the rest of it. But it's also about the professionals themselves recognising their responsibilities. And there was a level of disengagement and disempowerment, which you saw at mid-staffs, which you can see throughout the whole healthcare system. And if that continues, none of the other things will work. Even good management, if it, and you, you do see good managers sometimes trying to get it right and finding it difficult where there is um, a, 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 a body of professionals who simply don't want to engage, who have become so um, institutionalised by the system that they're not engaging with it. So uh, it, it, you need all those three pieces to start work, working effectively. Thanks, Neil. Simon Stevens. Well, picking up Jeremy's point, obviously one of the uh, fundamental lessons I think that comes out of Robert's report is that there's a need to take the patient voice more seriously and institutionalise ways of doing that. But I also think, uh, to Neil's point, there are early warning signals that we get from the uh, nurses, the doctors, the staff of individual hospitals. Within the last couple of weeks, the Department of Health has just published the annual NHS staff survey. And that showed that only 55% of NHS staff felt that if they saw malpractice, wrongdoing or fraud within their local organisation, it would be addressed by their local uh, hospital or uh, primary care trust. And in some hospitals, that is under half of staff who think that that would be the case. Well, that seems to me that's a sort of fairly strong kind of warning sign that we haven't got it right uh, in a number of uh, places. Relatedly, I think, looking back at Bristol, one of the things we should uh, conclude 
is that if we think certain things are important as part of the new safety and quality uh, apparatus, then when we say we're going to do them, we should actually do them. And the fact is that the response to the uh, Bristol Royal Infirmary report in Parliament in 2002 said that uh, clinical outcomes data would be published and it is now 2013 and we are still saying it is going to be published sometime this year. So if we were serious about that, we wouldn't have let that slide for 11 years. In 1999, the GMC announced that it had decided that revalidation would be introduced within the next two years. Uh, it has actually uh, been introduced uh, December of last year, uh, a 13-year delay. So that suggests that we don't actually take very seriously some of these fundamentals that I think most patients would assume are in place. Ruth Thorby. I think um, one of the main messages I've got out of the, the report was the implication is that we need to change our mindset, all of us, about what the state of quality is inside NHS hospitals from being, let's assume it's mostly good with some bad bits, to saying it probably might be quite bad and let's prove to us that it's good. And I just wonder what the implications of this are for patients and families going into hospital, but also all the local people who get involved in the different forums and um, ways that, that the public have to be involved locally, which I was really interested in the report, seems to have misfired completely. The patient and public involvement forum didn't work and was singled out as having been sort of both deferential and badly informed. The similarly with the overview and scrutiny committees, and I think part of this is the, the assumption that probably things were okay in the hospital. But what does it mean to be asked to think that things may not be okay in your local hospital? And will you have the ability to actually find that out? And will you be sufficiently well trained to go into a hospital and know when things aren't right? So I think it's actually very challenging to shift that position, and is is it's going to be very difficult to to make um, that happen and, and have meaningful public involvement. Um, I think if we look at the implications of the Francis report, I suspect we are, many people are making the common mistake to overestimate its short-term impact and underestimate its long-term impact. The feedback that I've been getting on uh, Francis is we will get a government response, but um, uh, that government response will largely be based around things the government was going to do anyway and we'll take Robert's name as a, uh, a support for, for, for doing that. However, out there in the, in the system, I think that there are a number of people at all levels, board level and, and elsewhere throughout organisations, who will take Robert's report and use it as a way to fight their way through whatever bureaucracy they have to do to make the kind of changes that, that, um, that he talks about. And I think that that will... And that will obviously take longer, but I think that will be quite, quite important. Two things that, there are two things that worry me, I suppose, about the context of uh, which the Francis report has been published. First of all, is we have to remember what happened at Midstaffs happened at a time when the NHS had more money and was getting more money than it had ever had beforehand, and yet still we had those care failings. I find a lot of people now talking in the system saying, well, look at the money. You can't, you know, it's obvious that we're going to get care failings because the money is going away. So there's some sort of, you know, assumption that care failings will follow the reduction in money, which is a very dangerous thing. And the final thing I'd say, the final danger is Robert's very powerful report 
has focused um, uh, people's attention on the quality of care in hospitals, um, quite rightly in the, context, in the brief it was given. Once again, just about as we perhaps were looking to, we were beginning to turn to look at the quality of care in primary care, where I think there are as many issues as there are in hospital care, we've been pulled back to look at hospitals again. Thank you. So what then do people want to see the government do in response to Robert Francis's report? Um, what would be the sort of one or two things they could do now, really, taking Simon's point about if they were to implement something now instead of in 13 years' time, what, what would those things be, Jan? If I could echo the way Julie started, I think, and, and said yesterday, please don't give us millions more things to do. Give us some scope to take responsibility. Yeah, okay, give us a small number of absolutely key things to do. But what would those be, those small key things? Um, <laughs> I, th I, th I, th I think I'm just going to have to look at Robert's report again to say what I would pick out. But I, I guess we know that there are a lot of things, that a small number of things that are central to the way we do things and that we have an organisation which is alert, where governance um, is assured and where we listen to patients exactly how we do that. I'm sorry. I uh, and, and in a way, as soon as we say you've got to do it this, this and this way, you, you've lost it. That's the whole point of what you sh should not do. We know we've got to do it, but le let's take a little bit of time to think exactly how is right for us. Robert. <clears throat> I'm not going to say which ones the government ought to do, because obviously I'm going to say they ought to do them, do them all. But actually, I think almost more important than that is how government behaves. Just as the leader in the ward, the leader in the trust can show... Uh, openness and honesty in their own behaviour, so can the government. And uh, um, be, frankly, I think there have been some signs that's beginning to happen, but we need honesty about what can and can't be done, because that's one of the things the government can do, and one of the most challenging things probably for politicians to do. So by all means, please I implement all my recommendations, but can we please have an open and honest dialogue with the public about what can and can't be done? And, and, and by doing that, being a role model for other people in the system, who in any event I hope are getting on and doing things without being told to do them. And when you say can and can't be done, is this about top-down, bottom-up? Is this about command and control versus well, no, leaving? It's really about, uh, I mean, a lot, of, uh, I think, will fall into Bruce's organisation's camp in terms of openness and honesty about what we can pay for or not. But we've got to be able to pay for the basic standards all the time. But with that may come a need for honesty about what that actually means in terms of other resources, things you can't resource. And at the moment, there's a temptation to pretend that everything can be done all the time, regardless of the money. Julie Moore. Um, dare I ask for politicians not to behave like politicians around some areas? Um, time and time again, we've seen clinicians make decisions based in the best interest of patients. And then, I mean, the point came up yesterday, we've had cabinet ministers, MPs, everybody out on the picket line saying, don't touch my hospital. Everyone else can reconfigure and we can make services safer elsewhere, but leave my hospital alone. And actually, that really has got to stop if people want us to make the improvements and to make the savings that we have to do. Stephen I completely agree with you about that. Uh, I, I would, I think, what should the government do? If I were in the department, there's a question I'd pose. I'm not sure there's a correct answer to it. But the question I'd pose would be a bit, it would be counterintuitive. It would be one of the responses to this 
could be, arguably should be, given the complexity uh, and, in, and therefore the inefficiency of the system that Julie started off by referring to, what can I abolish? What can I remove from the system in order to make the remaining bits of the system work better? Julie and Jan are nodding for those listening. <laughs> What would you abolish, Julie? Well, that's why I said I'd... <laughs> yes. Julie's got an answer, but I, I think I don't have an immediate answer, but I think it's the right question. Julie, a quick list of what you'd abolish. Well, not, not, not necessarily a, a quick list, but I will give you one if you like. But we've actually created organisations for a very good purpose. But when we actually then create another one that also does the same purpose, we still leave the other one in place. So there are, at the moment, locally, five organisations whose remit is to, re to advise on reconfiguration of services. And I, th I think that kind of thing is, is just got to stop. Jeremy. Uh, uh, there was a long period while people were waiting for your report, Robert, and there was a kind of uh, you know, a waiting for parties uh, um, a period. Uh, and we, we quipped that it was like waiting for Godot. But also there was a danger that the system would go into paralysis just waiting for your report rather than getting on and doing things that we actually knew could be done now. Now I think we're in a similar uh, space in that we are waiting for the government response. Uh, and, uh, and actually part of the conversation yesterday was, actually we don't need to wait for a government's response. There are things, there are, your report has very clear implications about changes that should be made in the NHS now. Uh, and I think Alice is right too. We mustn't forget that this isn't just about hospitals. I think there are things that government should do uh, uh, fairly quickly, which they can do, uh, and which only governments can do. So I think they should implement a statutory duty of candor, um, uh, because that's a, that's a thing government has to do. Candor isn't just about, uh, the law, it's also about practice, so everybody's got a responsibility there. Um, I think it could actually, uh, I think, you know, empower Bruce to do what Simon has been saying needs to happen, but has taken 13 years. We just need to get on with transparency uh, uh, because we still don't know enough about performance. Uh, and as part of that transparency agenda, there needs to be much more focus on understanding and measuring, capturing the patient experience, which is still far too patchy. And the friends and family test you know, is part of that, but doesn't go nearly far enough. I think the final thing is um, Health Watch, you know, is of the vehicle for uh, public voice in the system that the government has backed. Um, we may not think it's a perfect model, but it's there. So the government could help by enabling it to be as powerful as possible. Um, so I think it should implement the, the recommendations that you made around Health Watch, Robert. Uh, it ought, ought to have ring-fenced funding, uh, so you don't have a position where, for example, in Leeds, the budget for Health Watch will be £400,000, but in Manchester it's £80,000 because it's left to the discretion of the local authority. That can't be right. And I think everything around uh, uh, how a systematic way to recruiting people to come into Health Watch to give them proper training and support so they can perform an effective role. Um, so they're not a, a bunch of amateurs who are out of uh, you know, their depth or whatever, I can't remember your exact phrasing, but uh, we, we need to have good people coming forward and playing a really strong role. That is possible and doable. It requires uh, uh, investment and, and uh, a serious intent. Thank you. So, Bruce, do you feel empowered? I mean, are you, are you as an arm of government, what will you be doing in response to Francis's report? It hasn't been a great week. I've been accused of management speak and now uh, an arm of government. Uh, to, to be honest, I, I, I see myself as relatively independent. Can I just pick up a couple of things? So Alistair raised the issue of people saying, well, there's not enough money to offer good care. And um, 
And Stephen talked about abolishing things to make room for other things to happen. And that reminds me of a couple of things, really. It reminds me of the fact that there is a, a lot of evidence that better care costs less. And um, I can give you an example out of my own specialty. Um, in, in cardiac surgery, where in Virginia, a colleague of mine, who subs Jeff Rich, who subsequently went on to run Medicare, looked at um, the cost of coronary artery bypass surgery. And all units were performing well. But the unit that was performing, the units that were performing really well were 30% cheaper than the units that were just performing well. And the reason for that in an intervention makes intuitive sense because you do a good operation, less time in intensive care unit, fewer complications out of hospital sooner. And so I asked NICE some time ago um, to, um, to look at this, and they, they have a section on their website now where you can, where people have, have advanced their own evidence that they can offer better care cheaper. Um, and we're starting to accumulate that. And the question, in a sense, is, is how we spread that. So there is a lot of evidence for that. The second thing is, Fiona, you, I think it must have been September, October last year, you wrote an editorial in the BMJ, um, which raised the issue of overuse of treatments. And you pointed out that in the United States, a double-digit uh, percentage of um, expenditure on healthcare was around overuse of treatments. And you said, you know, overuse over there and also over here, I think was your sort of strap line. And so it gets to Stephen's point about what we abolish. Now, there are, of course, big organizational issues and structural things that can be changed. But for everybody in the workforce every day, we need to be thinking about appropriateness of care, about the elimination of overuse of treatments um, and the, the transference of that to the underuse of treatments so that we get more appropriate care. And that will provide better care for um, greater taxpayers' value. I was taken aback some years ago when a chief executive, and I think it was in Peterman, this was a long time ago, sent it, was in the early days of email, I think, it sent something around to the staff saying, please try and save a pound a day. And he got vilified in the press. But actually every clinician working in the NHS knows they could do at least that. Now you multiply that by the number of doctors and nurses. You could you could save quite a lot of money by just thinking about how we spend taxpayers' money with value. And that leaves, that, that provides a whole reservoir of, um, of opportunity for people who, who either suffering underuse of treatment or in the current financial, global financial crisis where um, the, the amount of money that's historically been available for the NHS will not be available for the foreseeable future. We as, as stewards, if you like, of the healthcare system have to think about new ways of doing things. And then finally I find myself thinking when, when you look at big companies, and I'm, I'm not really equipped to do that, but my perception is that um, they understand their money. These are companies that survive in, in difficult financial times. They ask their customers what they want and they innovate according to what their customers tell them. And they do it quickly. And I just invite you to reflect f 
for, for a moment on how well our NHS has done that. And in a sense, um, Robert Francis's challenge to us is to listen to what our patients and customers tell us. Nigel Edwards. I think that's a very interesting response because your question was what should the government do? And that's always been our question. And in fact, I think it's the wrong question here. Um, because one of the things I take away from the, the story of, of, of Ms. Staffs and from Robert's report is the importance of the frontline professional and their role and the leaders of the, you know, the frontline leaders of those professionals and how they behave and how that, how, uh, whether they have the skills to do it, whether they're empowered to do that and whether they give them the information. We, we keep saying what can the government do, but I think that a lot of this is actually about what should, what should individual staff do. If the government is going to do something, um, I think um, slightly buried away in, 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 uh, in, in, all, in the seminars and in the report is something about the culture of the department itself, which, uh, you know, thinking back to the, uh, was it the RAND Corporation and the Joint Commission and IHI uh, did these reports in the sort of mid-2000s, I think commissioned by Aradazi, which did raise some very interesting questions. I, th I think there's also a, a question about uh, you know, some of the arms of government examining themselves as, uh, rather than telling everybody else what to do. There's a bit of uh, self-reflection self and I haven't quite seen much of that in the response uh, to Robert's report. And why do you feel, do you think uh, the people at the front line are sort of infantilised or disempowered or what is it that's preventing them leaping up and saying hurrah we've now got a mandate to do what we've always wanted to do? Well, I think, I mean, this is one of the problems where we talk about the NHS as though it's some sort of single entity, and of course it, it, it varies enormously, and, 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 and you know, many organisations have, have managed uh, have managed to do that. So I think we need we need more understanding of what those organisations aren't doing that, have, have done wrong. There is a degree, there is a real problem, uh, which isn't talked about much, about how hard being a frontline member, you know, how much anxiety this produces, how difficult it is. Uh, how much support uh, uh, people require to do it well, and probably a, a, a sort of the sort of theme I think comes out from Robert's report is uh, we've sort of got caught out by the change in the type of patients that we now deal with. It sort of crept up on us gently. We sort of we knew it was happening, but the, you know the, 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 the large number of people with dementia, with multimorbidity, uh, we've got hospitals organised on the disciplines of medicine. Uh, for uh, dealing with acute care and uh, largely patients who resolutely uh, fail to fit into the way that we've organised our services. Um, and there's a bit of a tendency in the NHS to regard that as the patient's problem. Uh, <laughs> so I'm talking about inappropriate A&E. Uh, yes. yes, will not fit into how we... But, but that does cause quite... So, so that means that you know, the average... You know, the, the, the call on nursing time and more has got, it's got heavier, the, the numbers, the actual amount of personal care they need to deliver has changed. And I think in some places that's that sort of, those, those quite complex changes which also bring with them whole sets of new stresses, anxiety, are, are, a bit of a, are, are quite a lot of an issue. I think that's sort of at the heart of, 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 of quite a lot of what's said in the report. Ruth Orby. Wanted to, to build on that point really, and um, think about we we would want to see a blizzard of new standards descend on on the NHS. But I just want to picking up on on this question of, of how you understand what's happening to the frail elderly patient. I mean, could we could we define a set of standards that relate to um, the care of older people in hospital, those who are most at risk? I mean, 
the summit last year, we, we heard from an initiative in Canada where they set up elder-friendly hospitals that were particularly geared to try and look after and, and respond to the needs of older people. But it also raises the question of how we understand what's actually happening to older people in hospital. Because it was very striking reading through some of the witness statements that you know, there are patients on the ward that, that were seen by members of the family who had no one to, to advocate for them and possibly couldn't even speak very well. So how do you know what's happening to that? We need to have smarter ways of, of measuring it. And related to, to the previous point, also to understand the impact that this is actually having on staff, what it is like to take care of people um, on, on who, who are in this sort of um, very frail, confused state. It is really, really tough. Mm -hmm. Sam um, well, I welcome the Francis report for, from the commissioning perspective because we're not going to wait for any national commissioning board directives or any um, government directives about it. We're already going through it systematically, looking how we can embed it through our whole commissioning organisation, not just in our quality team, and using our audit committee to um, uh, make sure that our action plan that we're going to develop around it um, is actually um, undertaken correctly. And what's great about it is, is the ability, which I know technically we probably already have, but I think it really sort of crystallises our ability to go in and do work very closely with um, our hospital and other providers over quality issues and actually do deep dives, do clinical um, audits, do peer reviews and um, expect a much higher level of transparency from our providers in order to work with us on that, act as the patient advocate, which is um, a role we already feel strongly about. Um, and I think it's, it's interesting, we're, we're very lucky where we are because we happen to have a very good um, working relationships with all our providers anyway. And our medical director of our hospital has had quite a different mindset for some time about how care needs to go and has already sat and talked to all his uh, consultants about the need for more generalist beds, not specialist beds, and um, the need uh, to, to work in a much more holistic way with the patient. And those kind of conversations, also he's having conversations um, about 24-7 care, are, are, are difficult as a clinical leader to, to have with your own um, clinical fraternity. And um, I, I think we do need to make sure that those who are in clinical leadership roles leading the charge for a different model of care for patients, which is the right thing for the patient's get the support they need to in order to, to deliver that and I think it's very difficult when quite a lot of medical directors in hospitals are still doing partly their day job and are also undertaking all the gov um, governance issues, the revalidation and the performance issues perhaps with individual um, specialists they may be addressing to um, lead, lead that as well without some kind of um, system support within operationally within within the hospital environment and the same applies to um, the GP leaders that are trying to um, peer influence and talk to primary care about new models of primary care that could make a real difference for patients. Thank you. Alison McLennan, what should the government do or not do in response to Francis? Um. Well, Robert's given a very long list of things that it could possibly do, so um, its room for manoeuvre is, um, uh, is significant. I mean, people have made the point about, um, you know, there's quite, Robert calls for quite a lot of, if you add up all his, there should be increased scrutiny by this body, there should be increased scrutiny by that body, 
it does actually add up to quite a significant increase in the in the burden of regulation. I'm not quite sure if that was that was his intention, but if you took it in a very sort of straightforward uh, way, you could come to that uh, conclusion. Um, and obviously, I don't think that the um, uh, um, that that should happen. The point has been already made very el eloquently. Um, Nigel spoke about how the NHS this this problem has 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 has, uh, has come to affect the NHS, where we've got lots of older, sicker people concentrated in um, uh, in particular places in our hospitals. Um, that is the source of the problem. That, uh, as the, the, the particular care problem that, um, um, uh, uh, that was at Midstaffs, and that is a problem that you'll find in many hospitals right across the, uh, the country. Whatever they do should be focused, I think they can most usefully do, whatever they most usefully do, is focus on trying to solve that problem. Now, that might be looking at things around uh, staffing ratios, now, whether you should have staffing ratios or not, I'm undecided, but I think it's absolutely clear that we should do some more work in that area. We do have staffing ratios in areas like intensive care and paediatrics. The big workload within the NHS at the moment is within those um, wards dealing with um, elderly people, comorbidity, dementia, etc. There's got to be a lot more thinking uh, uh, and standard setting around that and the government could very usefully respond in that direction. Thanks. Neil Dixon. I'd like to go back to uh, Bruce's point about money, because I, d I do think money matters. And I think, without, I think he's absolutely right, that, and there's lots of evidence around it, that you can deliver quality care, and often the service is better than that which um, preceded it. On the other hand, the way that the NHS traditionally has reacted when money has become tighter and tighter is that it, it traditionally is like an old engine which you pour oil into. A lot of it goes in the floor, but it chugs along. If you start depriving it of oil, it starts to heat up. And I think we are already seeing signs of the system starting to heat up. Um, and I think that, that that carries with it dangers in terms of, of, of how we take, take this agenda forward. And one of the solutions which has been touched on here is that even uh, somebody running the best possible uh, hospital or institution can find themselves in terrible difficulty if, frankly, that hospital or institution or department should not be there uh, because the nature, the configuration of the service is wrong. And you've, you see heroic examples of good people trying to run institutions that are very, very difficult to uh, to get right. So I think there has to be some honesty around this, and this uh, uh, applies not just to care, but it also applies, uh, and we see this, to the education of the next generation of, of professionals, because you can't put in place good quality education unless you've got the, the right structure around it in terms of uh, hospital and other uh, configuration. So I think we will have to deal with that. And I, I think the question about money is whether, is it a burning platform that causes you to actually address some of these issues, or does it become so difficult that people are actually firefighting rather than addressing these very fundamental issues of quality that are provided at, uh, at clinical level? Simon Stevens. So, picking up Neil's point, I think that particularly shows up in social care, and I think everybody understands that social care, like primary care, is part of the kind of heat sink, if you like, this was an engineering system that uh, helps uh, prevent pressures showing up in the hospital system. 
I think the number of people in receipt of publicly funded social care is down 17% over the last six years at the same time as the number of people over 85 is up by over 20%. So there are great pressures showing up in social care and they are set to intensify. I think the question is, uh, everybody recognises that in principle there needs to be service redesign for frail elderly people with multiple chronic conditions. And so the question will be, what is it that's actually going to lead to that service redesign? If you think about the big shifts that have happened in the patterns of care in the history of the NHS, they've often actually had a uh, medical technology uh, trigger. Uh, you know, when the NHS was founded, 480,000 beds were 136,000 uh, last year. So the NHS has been closing beds since the day it was founded, but that has been driven by things like uh, uh, penicillin for uh, tuberculosis, uh, the antipsychotics in the 1950s uh, for the long-stay psychiatric hospitals, the short-acting analgesics for the move to day surgery and so on. What is the equivalent technology trigger uh, or is it just kind of a willpower that is going to lead us to redesign these services around uh, the needs of uh, frail elderly people? Stephen Dorham. I'd offer a suggestion of an answer to Simon's question, what's the technology that allows us to redesign our services? It's actually nothing to do with medicine. It's information technology. It allows you to redesign a system uh, around a better information flow. Uh, every other sector of the economy has been completely redesigned as a result of the development of, of modern digital technology. Uh, we haven't yet applied that remotely to its capacity in healthcare. I just wanted to ask Julie Moore to reprise something you said yesterday about where the next generation, or, or others in the, uh, around the table to comment on, where the next generation of, of um, committed and, and, and skillful managers and senior doctors and nurses are going to come from. Well, I don't know where they're going to come from because at the moment it doesn't seem like a very attractive job. And one of the points I did wish to raise just following on, which relates to this, is we talk about accountability and regulation of hospitals, but it's a system. And if primary care fails, then patients end up in the hospital. If community care fails, patients stay in the hospital. And actually, the, all the regulation we have today is around hospitals, really. And I, an ex a short example is, is this week we were asked to take ambulances from all the surrounding hospitals because they were in, you know, the technical terms, meltdown, and which would completely affect my standing with the regulator, who will not take a very um, generous view of the fact that we helped the surrounding region by taking their A&E patients through and failed the 95% target. So let nobody tell you the targets are gone. In speaking to some young graduates from um, a business school recently, um, out of a class of 35, I asked who would consider a career in health. Not one hand went up, and we discussed it. It was the news reports, it was the pressure, it was the perceived off with their heads all the time. Now, I actually do believe we should hold managers to account, but actually, it is about time we talked about the good things that go on and stopped trying to vilify absolutely everybody. I believe 99.9% .9 of doctors, nurses and every other healthcare professional come to work to do a really good job. It's a vocation. It's not about, they don't come to make millions no matter what people might say about doctors. Actually, the vast majority of doctors don't do a lot of private practice. It's about having a vocation and wanting to look after and care for people. My job is to make it easy for them to do the right thing and hard to do the wrong thing and make sure that they can deliver the kind of one-to-one -one care that we've been talking about. But where people are going to come and pick up this baton from, I don't know. There are many alternative careers for people to go into now that weren't around when I was young. And actually, we need to make this... I think um, it was said yesterday, 
managers have got to be treated as though they are an essential vital part and treated with respect in the system because quite frankly at the moment they're not. Thank you. I'm going to give the final word to Robert. Given the fact that most of the people listening to this will be doctors, what would be um, the, the one thing you'd like to say to them? Well, <coughs> I think <coughs> excuse me, a lot of what we've been hearing just from the last bit of the conversation is about um, things that need to be changed in systems and about how the care pathways need to be changed and we don't want older people in hospital. But what doctors, indeed nurses and all other frontline staff have to deal with is what, what <coughs> the needs of the patient here and now, which is after all the most important thing. They can't stand away and say, oh, the care pathways need to change or the regulators not doing their job. They, they have a responsibility and, and a, a, it should be a privilege actually to step forward, use their clinical autonomy to actually do the best uh, for their patients. And I, I do think in this context the care of the elderly is, is actually the, the key in the sense it's the sign. If, if, if a hospital is, and the professionals are getting that right, what, what, it, despite the challenges, it's quite likely things are going to be right elsewhere in that organisation. It's not actually right that Stafford was all about the care of the elderly, unfortunately. The surgery was wrong, A&E was wrong, a lot of other places were wrong. But um, if, you, it, it's about, if you're looking for care and compassion uh, and um, dedicated care with the patient being put first, get the care of the elderly right and use your clinical autonomy to do so. Thank you very much indeed to all of you for joining us. Thank you for listening. If you've got comments about this podcast, please do send a rapid response to bmj.com.